Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, All right. Aaron Weinacht here with the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network, and our guest today is Sean Patterson, and he's got a new book that's called Makhno and Memory, and it's about the Ukrainian anarchist uh, Nestor Makhno, and uh, it's uh, Mennonite narratives uh, about the uh, Ukraine's uh, civil war uh, from 1917 to 1921, so thanks for taking a bit to talk to me about the book, Sean. Thanks a lot for having me. No. Um, so it's starting off, thought it'd be good to, uh, for uh, listeners to uh, know, uh, how'd you come to studying history in general and maybe in, uh, just looking at this topic in particular? For sure. Um, I had always had a deep interest in, in history, and I guess it started largely in, uh, in high school. Uh, and I became, right from the get-go, really obsessed with, uh, with Russian history uh, with the Russian Revolution in particular. Um, but uh, I actually didn't, in, in university, I started off in, in Celtic studies, actually, and then, uh, and then eventually switched over to, uh, to Russian history. I, um, what led me to that switchover actually was looking at, uh, at the Civil War period and starting to look at um, some of the the leftist uh, enemies of the Bolsheviks. So some of these these alternative movements that had emerged during the Civil War period, and the Machnevists were uh, were one of these one of these movements that intrigued me. Um, when I did my uh, my honors uh, thesis in my undergrad, I, I looked at at Machno uh, in that, and that's when I first came across uh, Valine's book, The Unknown Revolution, which uh, sort of sets sets forward kind of the the uh, the anarchist perspective on the Russian and, and Civil War period. And uh, I was very fascinated by this movement and the, the kind of al- alternative social experiments that they uh, that they were attempting. Um, so that's sort of how my fascination with Machno began. Um, and it was also at that point that when I um, when I told my family what I was what I was studying is that uh, I came across sort of the the other perspective. So there's the anarchist perspective, but then the Mennonite perspective on on Machno, and um, I was surprised to learn that uh, you know they, they had a very negative view of Machno and, and sort of considered him as a as a, a you know effectively as a mass murderer of their people. Um, I should mention that I I grew up in a Mennonite environment. Uh, so I was surrounded by uh, Mennonite families, many of whom were directly affected by this. And um, the, that, the, the, this Mennonite perspective is, you know, sort of traditionally has not been included in any of the, uh, the general histories of Machno or and especially of any, any uh, sort of more anarchist sympathizing accounts. Um, and it was when I did my MA that I decided to to look at this, uh, you know, this, these conflicting narratives on Machno uh, and the Mennonites, and try to bring those those sources into into dialogue with each other. And uh, during my MA, I traveled to Zaporizhia, um, where these events occurred, which is in uh, southern Ukraine, and uh, I did some research there. Um, also did extensive research uh, in Winnipeg, where I'm from, and um, that research for my MA thesis laid the groundwork for this book. Uh, and currently, I'm at the University of Alberta. I'm a PhD candidate here. Uh, I'm continuing to look at uh, at the Machnevist movement, um, looking at it uh, in more of a broad, uh, broader perspective than than just the the Machnevist Mennonite conflict, but uh, kind of looking at uh, how the the Machnevist movement emerged, sort of as a uh, a movement within a borderland, um, a colonized borderland, 
so that's what I'm up to right now. Why, um, before we get into the substance of the book here, I, your uh, rendition there prompts me to ask, why do you think that is that the, the Mennonite view is so often left out, as you said, in the general histories? Is this what we're, you know, all caught up in, in uh, you know, Bolshevism or why, why is that? I, I think that th- there's a number of, of reasons why that perspective sort of uh, went to the, to the wayside. Um, for one, um, a lot of the, the earlier literature on Mahno uh, came from a, a pro-anarchist or at least a sympathetic uh, perspective to him. Um, so they, they were uh, generally avoidant of, of, you know, something that would make the movement look that bad as, as some of the, the Mennonite accounts do. Um, there's also... Uh, more recently, there's been attempts to kind of integrate Makhno into the, uh, you know, sort of Ukrainian pantheon of heroes of the, of the nation. Um, so, you know, the, the Mennonite, uh, the Mennonite issue kind of complicates that, right? It makes it more difficult. Um, pacifist isn't a good uh, uh, PR campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I, I think there's also... Like you mentioned, there's sort of a in in our in our field. There, there's always been a, a, a you know very strong focus on sort of the main players of of the the civil war. So the the Bolsheviks and the White Army and these other movements and groups um, were for a very long time not looked at or or just looked at in very very specialized studies or in the case of of Mennonites looked at you know within their own uh, their own scholarship. Uh, so. But that that's uh, rapidly changing, um, especially now with with these uh, more recent calls to you know decolonize the, the field of Slavic studies, and uh, begin to look at some of these um, these these narratives and stories that, that have, have have had a lot less attention put on them. Hmm. Well, it's uh, cool to find in graduate school something that really actually hasn't been done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So that, uh, that being said, uh, since, uh, Mahnel may not, may or may not be somebody who's real familiar to, to listeners, um, thought maybe you could start us off by discussing two things. Maybe first, uh, who Mahnel was and, you know, how he fits into the broader anarchist movement and then how Mennonite colonists uh, came to be in the Ukraine and Russian empire. Those both strike me as subjects that listeners could probably use a, a bit of a primer on. For sure. Yeah. So who, who is Makhno? I mean, that, that's a central uh, question of my book that, uh, that, that I sort that, that I say that, that I've struggled with and that actually, you know, even, even the people closest to him, right. Had, had struggled with, I start my book off with a quote from, Voline, who I mentioned, wrote that uh, that book, The Unknown Revolution. And Voline, um, for uh, a period in 1919, had spent a long time with him and said that he still, despite spending almost every day with him, still couldn't penetrate sort of this the, the enigma of, of Mahno's personality. Um, so there's, there's a real difficulty in pinning down exactly who who he was and, and, and what um, what he stood for in that. But um, but. You know, on the surface level, you can say that um, Makhno, he was, he was a Ukrainian peasant and he was an ideological anarchist. Uh, he was born in 1888. Uh, interestingly, he was born on the same day uh, as the revolution, the October Revolution, and also the uh, and, and the Eichenfeld massacre, which uh, which, which I uh, discuss in the book later on. But uh, it's sort of just a interesting strange coincidence that he, that he happens to be born on these both these dates but um he uh, he came from a poor peasant background both of his parents were serfs um he talked he talks a lot about uh in, in his memoirs he mentions sort of the abuse that his, that his mother and father had um had experienced as serfs and um he discusses growing up very poor, having to, to start work uh, as a child laborer from the age of eight. Uh, he worked, uh, he, he describes in his memoirs working on um, Mennonite and, and German estates. 
um, and they're experiencing and witnessing um, abuse in the workplace, which uh, generated in him, according to his memoirs, he says it generated a, a deep hatred of, uh, of class enemies. Um, when he was a teenager, so I believe around uh, 16 or 17 years old, he, uh, he joined uh, the local anarcho-communist um, group in Julia Polia. Uh, Julia Polia is a sort of medium-sized, uh, it's often described as a village, but it's more probably more, more like a, a large town or small city. Um, but, uh, and it's in, in southern Ukraine. Um, but he, so he joins this uh, anarcho-communist group, which uh, is kind of, a, it's a reading group, but it's also, a, we can describe as a terrorist organization. I mean, they, they go around, they, they rob uh, local, um, you know, wealthy merchants and landowners and that. Uh, they're engaged in a number of murders. Um, at one point, they start burning down estates. Uh, they also get into a battle with the local police. And uh, it ends up in the uh, assassination of the local police chief. Machno himself uh, is involved in an attempted plot to blow up a secret police station. And uh, he's arrested during that plot. Um, He's charged with terrorist offenses and uh, sentenced to death. Uh, However, this death sentence is is commuted due to his age uh, to life uh, in uh, a life of uh, labor in prison. And um, he's sentenced to Butyrki prison in Moscow, which was sort of a notorious prison for for holding a lot of uh, uh, political prisoners at the time. Um, it's in prison that he uh, he deepens his knowledge of, of anarchism. He's sort of uh, exposed to a lot of uh, different figures in prison from, from a variety of ideologies, although he becomes quite very good friends with uh, Pyotr uh, Arshinov. Arshinov is a, a Russian anarchist uh, who um, becomes quite... Uh, well known during during the revolution as well, and and later uh, joins up with Machno in, in, in the movement. Um, so they they forge a very strong friendship in prison. Uh, Machno describes in prison um, sort of carrying around uh, Kropotkin's uh, uh, mutual aid with him everywhere, um, and and sort of discussing uh, anarchist philosophy and these issues in prison. These eventually released along with our. Arshinov in during the February Revolution uh, in 1917, and there's at that time there was a kind of broad uh, political prisoner amnesty that releases these political prisoners. He's he's released. He goes back to his hometown and starts uh, organizing uh, peasants and workers in in the region. He um, quite quickly is able to kind of assert. His, his power in the town and uh, gather a following around him. Um, he, he organizes uh, a peasants' union there. He becomes the leader of the, uh, the metal workers and carpenters' union as well. And uh, they start to organize confiscation of uh, Mennonite, or sorry, not of the, the local estates, some of which uh, are, are Mennonite estates, which they transform into. Um, into uh, communes, um, so that's sort of up. That we're talking here, like up to the the October Revolution, when the when the Bolsheviks take power. Um, then you have to also uh, remember that that World War One is occurring at, at, at the same time, and um, the Bolsheviks, when they come into power, in order to end World War One or remove themselves from from the conflict, they they sign a treaty with uh, with the Germans, which effectively cedes lar- you know, most of, of Ukraine uh, to to Germany and Austro-Hungary, Hungary, and so Machno's region comes under um, Austro-German occupation at the during this period. That initially pushes Machno out of uh, out of the region, and uh, he will only return uh, quite a bit later. Uh, later in 1918, uh, to organize an underground insurgency against the German uh, occupation. Um, German occupation was horribly, um, horribly unpopular. Uh, it provoked 
widespread insurgency all across Ukraine. So uh, the sort of the emergence of the, what, what comes to be called the Makhnevshina is, is during this period is this insurgent period. And it's sort of part of a, of a much broader um, rebellion against uh, the German occupation. Um, Makhno, and, and this is also the, this is also the, the, the critical period where, where sort of the, the tensions between Mennonites and, uh, and Makhno and his followers uh, flares up because it's under the, the Germans, the German occupation, that the Germans begin to arm the Mennonites who traditionally were, were pacifist, right? However, many of them were, were very concerned about um, what would happen if and when the Germans left, right? What would happen to their, to their property and, and also uh, to their livelihoods? And so um, particularly the youth, uh, Mennonite youth, begin to, to uh, be drilled by Germans and are armed. And uh, sort of near the end of the German occupation, you, you have these uh, Zilpschutz units or self-defense units that emerge um, on the Mennonite colonies. And, um, now even before the Germans leave, the, the, some, some of the people associated with these units begin to accompany, um, the Germans on expeditionary, um, uh, on expeditions into, uh, Ukrainian villages. So what was going on is that they were, um, the Germans were hunting down, you know, insurgents, uh, inside Ukrainian villages. They were, uh, uh, trying to retrieve stolen stolen properties of property that had been taken during the the 1917 revolution, um, and and you have multiple accounts from uh, from various sides that that m- both Mennonites and German colonists uh, on occasion did did accompany these uh, these German units or acted as uh, informants on uh, for for the German forces. So this starts to generate a lot of resentment. Um, between, uh, you know, local peasants who, who were generally supportive of the insurgency and, and, the, uh, and these, the, the Mennonite colonies who largely embraced uh, the German occupation. Um, now, there's, a, there's one particular incident during this time uh, where there's a village, a Ukrainian village, that's uh, effectively burned to the ground by, um, by the Germans. And Machno describes this in detail in his in his memoirs. It's mentioned it's mentioned uh, in in other Machnovist uh, accounts as well. Um, and uh, there were there were German colonists that uh, that accompanied the 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 German forces that burned this this Ukrainian village down. Um, the, it's it's not clear whether they they were Mennonite colonists, but it's just uh, we know that there were German colonists and. That Machno seems to have been quite traumatized by uh, by what happened there. He he describes his memoirs um, uh, attempting or almost committing suicide, uh, and 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 sort of uh, beginning this what he describes as a campaign of sword and fire against counter revolutionary forces, of which are included uh, Mennonite and German colonists, and. Um, he he also it's also at this point in his memoirs that he he describes destroying uh, a German Catholic uh, colony. Um, so there the, there's kind of this um, a very quick escalation in in attacks on uh, Mennonites and and Germans at that at that moment. Um, this is right at the end of the the uh, you know German occupation of Ukraine. They, they very soon after leave. Um, and the, uh, the, the immediate region around Pula Pulia is, uh, is, is quite like the, the, the Mennonite colonies are, are just devastated by, uh, by attacks and robbery. Um, it forces a lot of them to flee south to, to other Mennonite colonies. And that's where they sort of, the Zelbschutz establishes a, uh, a kind of front line against, um, against Machnevist forces and uh, they, the Zelpschutz begin a collaboration with the white army as, as well at that point. Um, on Machno's side, he, uh, 
they, they forge an alliance, a temporary alliance with the Bolsheviks. And you sort of have this, uh, this, this back and forth battle that, that happens. And, um, during which, you know, once again, there's a lot of resentment from, from the fighting between these two sides that grows. Um, I guess just to, to sort of carry the narrative forward a little bit, it's, it's later in, in, in 1919 and fall 1919, where we see the worst of the attacks between these these two sides. Um, in 19 in in the in mid 1919, uh, the White Army uh, had uh, taken over large swaths of, of Ukraine, particularly uh, southern and eastern Ukraine, as they were they were pushing up to to make an attack on Moscow. Right, uh, that had pushed Makhno's forces. Uh, to the west of, so more towards central Ukraine. Now in the fall, Makhno begins a, a counteroffensive into the rear of the, the white army and uh, causes massive, massive disruption um, and actually manages to, to take an enormous area uh, of southern Ukraine. Uh, he captures at this point numerous major cities like what is, what is today uh, Dnipro and Zaporizhia, Berdyansk, um, and, and of course, all of the, the various Mennonite colonies. And it's, and it's at this point of where sort of at the peak of Makhno's power that, uh, you see these, these large scale massacres, uh, occur. Um, so in a period of about six weeks, there's, uh, over 800, uh, Mennonites that, that are, that are murdered in, in various massacres, um, by, Forces that uh, that identify themselves or are aligned with uh, with the Machnavists. So that's sort of just the uh, uh, a, a survey history of, of, of Machno the person and and the, this conflict that emerges between Mennonites and Machnavists. So how then do the um, you know up to this point we're taking for granted that there's Mennonite uh, settlers in Ukraine. So how do they get there? Yeah, for sure they. Um, they came in in the 1700s under uh, Catherine the Second. So, um, southern Ukraine was colonized by Catherine the um, Second. It had been kind of this. Uh, uh, it had been kind of a contested area. So Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine. Um, there were Cossacks living there. There were uh, peasants. Ukrainian peasants, and there were um, also a lot of Turkish uh, and Tatar raids into uh, into um, into Zaporizhia during that during that period. Um, so, Imperial Russia and Catherine the Great, they, there's a lot of uh, alliances that are made with the Zaporizhian Cossacks to defeat the Turkish the, the, the Turks and Tatars in that area. Eventually, they they take this area. And it's at that point that that Imperial Russia starts to colonize Zaporizhia. This involves uh, destroying uh, destroying the Zaporizhian Cossacks' capital, um, imprisoning some of their leaders, co-opting some of them in, into the administration, um, or uh, or or in, in in the case of the the poorer Cossacks, and that some of them are are enslaved. Uh, and serfdom in, in general was introduced into the area at, at that time. Um, so in this attempt to, to colonize the region and, and build it up uh, economically, Catherine II invites um, foreign colonists. So this, this includes a, 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 wide, a wide variety of, of people. There's, there's Greeks and Bulgarians and Swedes and uh, um, Serbians and all that that come into this region to to help uh, work the land and that. Um, and the Mennonites and uh, Mennonites and other German uh, religious groups are, are uh, brought in at this time. Um, the Mennonites are able to, uh, to, to come up with an agreement with Imperial Russia. It's called the Privilegium. And it outlined special privileges that they had. So some of these privileges were, um, uh, they, they had an exemption from military service. Um, they had, um, lower taxes and such. Uh, so these are sort of, um, benefits to entice them to come in, in, into the area. 
So they come in. Um, initially, they they struggle. There's a lot of hardship, and the land is is certainly not as good as they as it was advertised to them initially. Um, <laughs> and uh, as as is often the case, right? But uh, they but eventually they become very very uh, um, exceptional exceptional farmers in the region, and um, these uh, so Mennonites. As, as a community generate a lot of uh, a lot of wealth in their in their communities and and they accumulated a lot of land um, however uh, it should be pointed out that the Mennonites themselves experienced a, a massive land crisis in the 1800s where you had um, as many as as half of them were were landless right and this had to do with the land tenure that uh, that Mennonites practiced of um, passing on, um, passing on their their land in, entirely intact, they they didn't divide it up, right? As uh, as a lot of peasants did, they divided their lands up between their um, uh, between the sons, right? So the Mennonites passed it on intact, so that left out you know certain certain people, so they would end up landless. So in order to to deal with this this landlessness problem, they they started buying up. Um, more land, generally from former uh, Russian nobles uh, who who owned large swaths of land or estates in in, in the area, and they created uh, these subcolonies or what they called daughter daughter colonies, where the landless Mennonites could now uh, have their own land as well. Uh, that, however, uh, you know, did bring them into conflict with with some of the the Ukrainian peasants that lived in. The, in the region because it, it, the, the whole, you know, how, how the land was work, what access they had to, to rivers and forests, and it all had to be renegotiated. Um, and sometimes there were uh, what Ukrainian peasants felt were very, you know, exceptionally high fees were levied, say, to, to access, uh, you know, a water source or, or forest or um, uh, to rent the land, also to, to, to rent land and that, that they, they felt that the, the, the prices were very high um, in the the Eichenfeld ma- uh, the Eichenfeld situation that I that I describe in my book um, you, uh, you, there's evidence of, of these these type of tensions of, of sort of that there were there were tensions about the prices the the access to to the river all, all this kind of stuff that, that contributed towards what what happened there can I can I interject a quick question there? Yeah, for sure. Your your uh, the narrative you're sketching out so here so far makes me wonder. So after 1861, when the uh, uh, as a result of peasant emancipation, you got all those uh, redemption payments. So when if after that point, if there are Mennonites buying up noble estates, do those peasants' redemption payments transfer to the new owners, or does that end them? Uh. I'm not entirely sure if it, if it, I don't believe that it ever transferred to these redemption payments ever transferred to the, to Mennonites. I I didn't come across any evidence that they were paying out redemption payments to them, but, um, it, it was more that the, the, because the, the, in terms of the redemption payments, that would have been for the land that the peasants themselves had, right? Right. They owned it, but the Mennonites weren't buying up that, land they were buying up um like separate lands that that these russian nobles had right just occurred to me that if you're looking for reasons for bad blood if that was the case that that might figure prominently for sure yeah i think what what was going on more was was that it had more to do with the the um like the share sharecropping and that they so these peasants that that were renting out land from so Mennonites who who came into this noble these noble lands that they bought up, and then they were uh, renting that land out to uh, to peasants who felt that the prices were exceptionally high. Uh, there was also resentment sometimes about um, how the how all these lands were were laid out, like geographically laid out. So there, there's accounts of um, uh, Ukrainian peasants being angry that they they had to you know walk through large amount of, of Mennonite owned land just to get to their uh, to to their strips of land. So there's sort of this this 
there's all kinds of resentments about the arrangement and how land had been bought up and who's renting it out at what price and that. Um, and, and so the, that, I think that's, that's always really important to keep in mind about this topic, right? Is sort of the, the socioeconomics of what's going on at the ground, you know, and that's, you know, beside any of the political and, and ideological elements that, that come up during the, the, the civil war um, is, is, are these, these economic issues that are already, generating uh, a lot of resentment amongst the public or amongst the population so uh now that we've got the kind of call that the background on the table then um uh, maybe maybe next uh what we ought to do is is have you sketch out so what actually happens at these at these massacres like when are they what are the you know are there immediate uh immediate causes what's you can just go over kind of the, the centerpiece of events of the book. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the massacres themselves, I, this is the third part of my book and I focus, um, I, I focus mainly on the Eichenfeld massacre, um, which is, uh, which occurs, uh, as I mentioned, this period in, in fall 1919 in which, uh, Machno's forces slam into the rear guard of, uh, of Denikin's white army, and they take over a large area of southern Ukraine, um, including uh, the the majority of the well, all, pretty much all of the the colonies uh, in in that in that area. Um, Eichenfeld is part of the Yasakovo colony um, that's close to modern day Dnipro. It's just uh, just south of it, um, and so the. There's various patterns uh, that that cut across even even beyond beyond Eichenfeld to, to all of to all of the massacres. So one common element is the presence of these Zelpschutz units in most of the mass most of the main the main massacres. Um, you have presence of a Zelpschutz unit which has been um, fighting against uh, both you know Bolsheviks and Machnevists for for quite a while, um, and may and at you know even even in 1919 continuing to to attempt to, to fend off some of these uh, to attempt to, to fend off Machnevist forces. Um, now it should be should be pointed out it's not not in every case there were massacres that occurred where there was no Zelpschutz, um, because that's one of the, the one of the main sort of main controversies is. You know what? You know, should the Zelpschutz be you know blamed for for what happened, right? And and did they did they kind of provoke it by their presence? But yeah, I did want uh, to ask about that. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, that that's that's an that's a very important question. But the, there is the pattern that they they were present, or there was a force present uh, at most of these these massacres. I, I think that in terms of culpability. Uh, it shouldn't. My my feeling is that it shouldn't be looked at as d- did they did they cause the, the the these massacres. There were many many uh, reasons for, for for the massacres, and the Zilpschutz is one component which was used by those who committed the massacres to to rationalize and justify what they were doing, what they did. Um, so I don't think that that saying that they sort of singularly were the, the, the cause of it or, uh, or, or even, even, even a main, I mean, yeah, even a main cause necessarily, um, because it's hard to say whether if the, the Zobschutz had not been present, you know, would, would these massacres, they could have, they could have occurred even without the Zobschutz there. However, they are a, uh, a catalyst, um, that, that's present, uh, for this to happen. So you, so you have, you have that present. You 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 also have what I mentioned about the the sort of these resentments about land and the arrangements and the the payments um, and uh, the there's also because the revolution, particularly in the countryside, right, was about taking land and you know the peasants taking the land back, right, taking what they believed was theirs. So there's a lot of these massacres are premised on the local. Uh, Ukrainian village is absorbing that land. Um, that uh, that 
that's was very clear in in the evidence of for for Eichenfeld is what what was going on there because they when the when the massacre was occurring they uh they they were it seems that they were the the they they were very focused on who were who was landowners who was not and they were t- they were specifically targeting landowners and and their sons um, so that it appeared that it appears that there was a the very clear effort to eliminate that land owning um, uh, heritage, um, and so with Eichenfeld itself, uh, there's also the the element of uh, at that moment there was a a large transfer of Machnevist troops between uh, Zaporizhia city and and what is now Dnipro and so they were moving from um, they were moving from from uh, Alexandrovsk Zaporizhia up to uh, Dnipro or Katerinoslav and they so on that day where the massacre happens there's thousands there's literally thousands of troops passing through there um, it appears that Local peasants from from some of the eyewitness reports had recruited some of these Machnevists to go and attack the village. Um, so you have a, a coming together of local peasants um, from nearby villages and these Machnevist units, and there there also is the, the another added layer of uh, that that the Machnevist counterintelligence was sort of ferreting out all these Zelbschutz units and Eichenfeld had a, had a particularly uh, bothersome unit that, that they were attempting to, to, to take out. And so on the day of the massacre, what, what you notice is that, that um, the, the father of the leader of the local Zelbschutz is, is the first person killed. Um, And that's, the father was murdered because they mis- mistook him for the for the actual leader because they had the same name. So, um, so that you also have these these counter intel counterintelligence u- units operating in the region and they're they're trying to take out Zelbschutz leaders. So there's there's many interlocking layers and factors that come together to make these massacres happen. There's there's some some of the some of them are, are broader factors. Um, that you know you can kind of apply to to all of the massacres that occur in this region, and then there's very localized, uh, very localized particular um, factors, right, that that cause this. So uh, you've you've sketched out in the book uh, by contrast with this extremely, I don't think I'm overdoing it here, extremely complex situation that both the uh, you know, the, the, the post facto Machnovist narrative is oversimplified and perhaps the, the post facto Mennonite narrative is oversimplified as well. So I thought maybe it'd be helpful for listeners if you could explain, like, you know, why are those narratives, where are they oversimplified? Maybe where are they right, but where, where, do those, where do those narratives break down in light of the extremely complex situation on the ground? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The so the Machnevist narrative, um, obviously, there's sort of a propagandistic element, right? That um, they they wanted to present the positive aspects of their movement, and many of the memoirs uh, were written in in exile, right? So in exile, uh, Machno in in nineteen late nineteen twenty or summer nineteen twenty one uh, flees to Europe. Eventually, he ends up in Paris. Alongside uh, other uh, other uh, other leaders and ideological figures of the movement, um, they're writing to 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 justify the movement to an international audience, particularly other radicals and, and anarchists around the world. Um, there were a lot of uh, accusations of against Machno that his forces were involved in banditry and. Um, and anti-Semitism pogroms, right? So Machno was uh, constantly on the defensive about this and constantly um, uh, defending his movement and, and 
and uh, the same this you can see the same in Arvashinov's book and and to a large extent in, in Voline's book of um, emphasizing the, the the positive characteristics over <laughs> these negative characteristics and understandably and it should be said that the movement did have like they they did attempt to introduce uh, a lot of these these constructive policies of of anarchism they they did carry out experiments in in radical uh grassroots democracy and they did carry out experiments in um you know direct direct barter sort of cashless economy and they um so so there were and and a lot a lot i mean it was a very popular movement the the popularity of the movement uh for many peasants they experienced it as a liberatory movement so there is that there is the positive aspect of the, of the movement there. Um, however, um, as I mentioned in the book, the the Machnavists, they they never they never mention Mennonites once. It's it never never talked about. Um, they occasionally mention German colonists that the Men- Mennonites are sort of absorbed under that label of German colonist. So, but they don't make the differentiation, and they certainly don't ever talk about the 1919 massacres. As I mentioned, they, they, Machno does talk about in 1918 destroying a particular uh, German Catholic village. Um, in his wife's uh, diary, she also mentions uh, destroying a, a German Lutheran colony at one point. So there are occasional hints of this uh, of this violence inside the literature, but it's never sort of uh, looked at uh, in depth by them. They do address, Voline particularly does address the violence and he criticizes the movement for the violence, particularly uh, the army. Um, and he accuses the army of engaging in, in, in rape, which was, which was a problem inside the army. Um, there's, uh, the, so, so you have, the, there's, there's reasons. There's sort of propagandistic reasons for for the for what how they're narrativizing uh, the history in that. Um, on the Mennonite side, uh, there's very much you you don't you don't see any of the you know they they, they rarely talk about any of the sort of uh, social experiments that that the Machnavists are doing. They talk only, it, only about sort of the, the devastation that they experienced. And in fact, in a lot of cases, I don't think they were even aware of the social experiments that the Machnavists were carrying out simultaneous to, to all of this violence that's going on. Um, so that's that can partly explain, you know, why uh, why you, why in Mennonite literature, you, you don't have a more maybe um, more complex sort of investigation of, of the movement um, and it's particularly its ideology. Generally, it's the anarchism of, of Machno is described as just sort of chaotic and, and their, you know, their, their aim is, is, is simply to, to just uh, create havoc and, and chaos. Um, an example, actually, I, that I mentioned in, in the book of, of sort of not being aware of of the constructive aspects of the movement simultaneous to the to the to the negative aspects is there's one Mennonite who describes participating in a local election, um, and he says that the workers and peasants of the area had uh, decided to carry out these elections, and he actually this this Mennonite, I believe he was a teacher, found himself elected to the local Soviet, and. <laughs> but he, he at the same time he he he's in, you know immediately after that he says that the Machnavists had no no platform no program they their only you know their only purpose was to create create chaos and so but little did he know that these these uh, these elections were organized by Machnavists and that the and that at you know at the larger so he was elected as a local representative but those local representatives also um, elected uh, representatives to go to a larger congress in uh, Alexandrovsk and there they they did actually develop a, a very detailed program um, that that sort of was a I guess could yeah it acted as the 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 main statement of the movement on sort of what their ideological and social vision was so. A lot of the times, it, 
the the in the literature how how one side constructs the other is is a is a byproduct of kind of the, their isolation from each other's perspectives and that you know uh, uh something that we you've touched on this a little bit with regard to those privileges you you discussed earlier that the colonists had from the the russian state and that brings up another question I'd wanted to ask you. You know, we usually talk in stories about unsung heroes, but it seems to me that, uh, you know, the Russian state is really kind of the unsung villain uh, of your book in that, uh, you know, you correct me if I get this wrong, but my impression is that basically when the First World War broke out, the Russian state kind of sicked the nationalist dogs on the uh, German colonists had formerly given, you know, privilege to. Is that is that right? Yeah, that that's absolutely true. So there were um, there there were tensions developing between uh, the Russian government and Mennonites and and other German colonists. Um, it reached a fever in World War One, and that led to the uh, the the government passing these land liquidation laws, right? Which was basically that that all German land was going to be confiscated. Um, and redistributed, um, and they they began uh, they they began this uh, land liquidation. Um, it, it affected uh, it, it mainly affected non Mennonite German colonists in 1916, but um, they they were sort of attempting. The government was attempting to expand it to men, but Mennonites made the argument that they weren't actually German. They were they were Dutch. Based on you know their their historical their historical her- lineage and and the dial this particular dialect that they that they spoke I, I believe there were other I believe there were some Swiss um, Swiss German colonists as well that, that made a similar argument right mm. that they, they weren't actually German and so there was there there was some some you know um, uh, you know really just just <laughs> Nit, nitpicky kind of <laughs> nitpicking on on uh, on genealogy for a while there to try and sort of prevent the, the the expropriation of their land call it call it strategic sophistry yeah 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 and i mean it, it was to, to some extent i mean like it could be argued right because the, and this is the this is a whole a whole other uh, in mennonite studies right of who who are men it goes into identity and how do we construct identity right who are them who are these men and his Russian Mennonites, right? Are they, are they, they German, right? A lot of them identified at the time as, you know, culturally German, but it's true. They did, they did come from the Netherlands originally. Um, they spoke a dialect that, that was sort of a, had a lot of Dutch influence in it. Um, so it, it, it also goes to how do groups of people uh, construct each other. And, and I think that that's, that's, still something that that Mennonites today uh, will will debate and talk about. You know, since you bring up the idea of of identity construction, uh, something that occurred to me when I was reading the book was, you know, is this from the, um, you know, Machnova's perspective, which is, you know, really based around social class, like, you know, it's been argued, uh, I'm thinking here of uh, somebody like Eric Weitz, um, you know, it's been argued that in effect, uh, uh, Russian Marxism turned class into race mm. with a kind of, you know, heritable, you know, class status and so on. I mean, is it, is it, I guess what I'm getting at here, is it possible for, for Mennonite colonists you know, to be come to be seen as the good guys from the Machnovis perspective, or is it the case that from from that anarchist perspective that they're kind of locked into this one identity that they can't escape because of their you know ethnic heritage or something like that? Yeah. So the the you yeah you're you're sort of approaching the this intersection right of class yeah. and ethnicity and how do they how do they work together in this period? Uh, that's that's something that. I find particularly fascinating about this topic um, because it, you know, as you noted there that the Machnavists in their rhetoric, right. It's, it, it's solidly based on social class. 
um, everything, the, the rationalizations and their propaganda are all, um, you know, it's, it's all, we're doing this in the, in the name of class conflict. They explicitly um, issue out many of the, their propaganda leaflets and that they, they explicitly condemn any attacks based on ethnicity. Um, this is this is particularly in the case of um, uh, Jews. They repeatedly emphasize that that attacks on Jews should should not be made um, on the basis of ethnicity. But they say it, it's across the board: Germans, Russians, Ukrainians. All shouldn't be any any ethnic attacks. Uh, however, you know when it, it's more it's it's more complex than this, right? Because especially in the case of Mennonites and German colonists. You, you have a, a tight, uh, a tight link between um, wealth and ethnicity there in the region, right? So you have you have wealth that's that's concentrated in particular groups, right? And so how then then if if even if the Machnavis are are targeting particular people based on class and based on wealth, you dis, you you inevitably disproportionately end up with particular groups being targeted more. Right. So there's an ethnic element um, just sort of an inherent in that in that process because of the way that, that wealth is, is distributed in the region. Um, so uh, now at at the same time, like that, you you do have on, at the rank and file level, you have people you, you have soldiers, you have accounts of soldiers, Machnavis soldiers um, expressing Germanophobia. Um, there's. And, and definitely anti-Semitism is there. Uh, there's there's complaints from uh, Machnavis commanders, like in inside the army, they're complaining of their, uh, you know, some of their troops that have been infected by anti-Semitism. The some of the anarchist intellectuals, off, many of whom were were Jewish, operating inside the movement, um, are complaining about anti-Semitism at the rank and file. Um, and then you have accounts from Mennonites of. Machnavis saying that you know they're gonna they're gonna kill all Germans and, and this this kind of rhetoric. Um, so you you have to also kind of separate what what's going on. Like some some of the the, the more cruder expressions of of ethnic animosity that's occurring at the at the rank and file level from the the rhetoric that's that's occurring, the more ideological rhetoric that's occurring at the propaganda level or at the level of of the the command leadership. And there's always kind of a, a, a tension there between the command, the, the, the command and the rank and file. And, you know, like what, what, what violence is permissible and what, what is not, like, where do we draw the boundaries? You know, what is, what is ethnic violence, right. Versus not right. So if Machnavis go in and they um, destroy a, a market, they rob a market in a city that's largely run by, by Jews, is that a pogrom, right? Or is that based on class, right? So these are these are some of the questions that they were constantly grappling with, and and it's never it's never uh, I don't think they ever arrived at at a at a, at a sufficient solution to, to how to grapple with this. Um, <clears throat> another uh, another issue. Uh, just to keep talking about, yeah, I guess the, the, the whole anti-Semitism issue is that in, um, in 1919, in summer 1919, they integrated a large force of, um, uh, it, it was sort of a, it was a, it was a separate independent force that they integrated into their army, um, who were notorious for pogroms. This was, uh, Gregoriev's, uh, forces. He was a separate sort of warlord Machno killed him on the basis of of anti-semitism um however then integrated his forces which had been uh culpable for pogroms so then so th th this is the the sort of uh th this this contradiction and paradox right is that you have a <coughs> opposing anti-semitism but at the same time integrating forces that are responsible for for brutal for for brutal atrocities against against Jews, it ends up. Uh, Valin explains that it ends up that they had to dismiss many of these, uh, you know, many of these units that they had integrated because it was they were just simply too corrupted by anti-Semitism. So, hmm. um, 
that you know they, they, these are just some of the the sort of how how complex that that intersection between um ethnicity and class is and and and, and how it was tackled at, at the grassroots level uh just one more one more factor is that within the Machnavist army you do have some german and mennonite colonists that join the uh that join them um it's rare um but there are eyewitness accounts of even um, Mennonites participating in the massacres in their own village in their own villages, and you have uh, you, you have accounts also of, of you know of, of Mennonites who who you know go go into the army and and even achieve uh, uh, some status within the army. Um, there's one case of a a Mennonite named Peter Thiessen who rechristened to Petka Thiessen, and he he became the um, uh, sort of right-hand man of, of the, the commandant, Machnavist commandant of, uh, of, uh, Alexandrovist. So that's, that's Zaporizhia city today, uh, for, for a time. Um, and the, the commandant also had, had a partial German background as well. So, um, the Machnavists didn't, didn't, uh, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't see necessarily, you know, if you came from a, a German or Mennonite background, then you're, eternally the enemy rather it was sort of you 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 know you you could become a machnavist if you you know a lot on class basis right or if you sort of uh turn against your your past and join them right so it wasn't uh it, it wasn't this kind of universal blacklisting of anybody from a particular ethnicity um yeah so th- lots lots of again it's very complicated many many factors involved in this you know, maybe this is just my, you know, kind of uh, idiosyncrasies, but that, that brings up to me what's one of the kind of profounder ironies of this whole situation, which is that radical Protestants have always seemed to me to be some of history's original anarchists themselves. And yeah. <laughs> so, so to me, that just, I don't know. I mean, I'll be of a different kind than Mike Noah was, obviously, but, but still, you know, it seems like a really really kind of profound irony of this scenario to me. Absolutely. And I mean, it's something that in, in the research and writing of this book that I, you know, would in my own mind keep going back to is that, um, you know, the Anabaptists were uh, in, in many ways anarchistic, right? Um, yeah. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. That they, you know, the rejection of the state, um, some of the more uh, communal ways of sharing property and that, and so, you know, kind of economic autarky to an extent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the book, that uh, Kropotkin, so that that was, uh, if if listeners don't know who he is, he was sort of the god, one of the godfathers of Russian anarchism or anarchism even as a whole. And um, he he traveled to Canada, and he visited Mennonite uh, colonies here in, in Canada. And uh, he was quite impressed by them, and he 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 had critiques of the religion. Um, however, he was very impressed with the way that they organized themselves and felt that there was an affinity with with his ideas. Um, so, so that I mean that that's that's absolutely is is there. And however, the in in Ukraine uh, and in in the Russian Empire. Uh, the way that history unfolded, it ended up that the uh, the, the Mennonites uh, there were more, at least initially, more aligned with the imperial with imperial Russia, right? Because they were they were an integral part of the the colonization project of the region, right? So they became entangled in imperial uh, imperial goals, right? It, Largely, I you know I, I think there's an, an unwittingness to, to to all of this, or or a um, because it, there's there often in the literature doesn't seem to be a mm, uh, a consciousness of, of how uh, how how much they were integrated into that that kind of um, imperial project. Um, so the you know and and then also their their economic success in the region which which ended up generating a lot of uh resentment from from local peasants i was uh we're kind of running short of time here and uh 
I, maybe now would be a good time to kind of wrap it up and ask, um, my, my impression is that you're kind of continuing with this overall research topic. And so I was kind of wondering if you could, you know, tell listeners where you're headed next. And then I was also curious if, uh, if the current conflict in Ukraine is affecting your, your research on these matters at all, you know, do you have enough sources to keep going or is this going to interfere with, you know, uh, research travels? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a there's definitely a story behind behind all that. Um, so in terms of my research, yes, I'm continuing on researching uh, the Machnavist movement, looking at it more broadly beyond just the Machnavist Mennonite conflict. I'm um, wanting to to sort of look at the movement as as not trying trying to move beyond these sort of. Um, um, singular explanations of, of the movement is, you know, fundamentally anarchist or fundamentally uh, kind of a criminal uh, criminal group, or 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 even fundamentally like a, a, a kind of a ethnic or national movement. But I'm, I'm wanting to understand it more as a byproduct of that colonization process of southern Ukraine, and um, and as emergent as a a movement out of a borderland region. Um, as part of that, I'm very interested, again, like we, we were talking about that intersection between ethnicity and class um, and, and how that operates. Um, I, I'm also very interested in, in the how did the ideology of the movement change over over its existence? And then how was how was that uh, narrativized in exile and how did how did their ideology and perspective change in, in exile? Um, in terms of the research, doing the research itself, I, um, it, the, the, the war, well, first the pandemic and, and now the war in Ukraine has severely impacted my ability to, to do the research and, and to go to the region. I'm not able to go to the region. The, the front line of the war right now is, is right on Kodeapolia, uh, where you know, this is Makhno's hometown. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I have. It's 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 been an interesting, and actually in a, in a way a very very positive experience to sort of connect with researchers and scholars from the region and uh, share information. Right. So it's it's kind of been a uh, an experience of of mutual aid itself. Hmm. Right. The, yeah, the sort very of, very Kropotkin esque. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, it's been a very good experience in terms of um, exchanging information and research and, and documents, and um, and so that's that's really uh, what has allowed me uh, to to continue to do this re- research is is uh, effectively uh, the generosity of a lot of people who who are still living in in that region. Um, there there also is uh, other uh, uh, other institutions that that I've been able to get information from that are outside of Ukraine and, and Russia. Uh, for instance, I recently went to the New York Public Library, and they hold an extensive collection of uh, anarchist newspapers, and they some of which were ma- are Machnavist newspapers, uh, and and uh, also newspapers and pamphlets of a group that was closely aligned with the Machnavist, the Nabat Confederation. They're a Ukrainian uh, anarchist group. Uh, that had sent a lot of intellectuals uh, into the movement in 1919. So that that also was a, a was an amazing experience uh, to be able to go down there and 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 find uh, that material, uh, which which actually interesting was uh, had had kind of been was lost. It was the, the material was known, um, but then when they they switched over to their digital catalog, that it wasn't cataloged there. So there's sort of been a rediscovery of that material more hmm. more recently. Uh, so it was great to, to go there and, and, and consult that. Um, in July, uh, my plan is to uh, to go to Amsterdam. There's the International Institute of Social History there, and they contain a lot of uh, papers and archives of of uh, anarchists who were aligned with uh, with Machno, uh, or who who got to know him in uh, in exile. Um, I'm, I'm especially interested in uh, Voline's archive is, is held there. So I'm particularly in- interested in, in taking a look at, at his archive. 
I'll uh, look forward to reading that when you get finished with it. When it, uh, whenever you turn it into a book, call me and we'll talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, we can uh, revisit this subject here in another few years. So, uh, well, thanks for taking the time to uh, give us a rundown on this. this is, it's not often that, um, I guess you might say, history catches up with a historical subject like this. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, thanks, thanks for your time, and uh, you have a good rest of your day. Well, thank you very much. You take care.